The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. on Wall Street, and here's your top five at five. Another day, another failed rally as stocks look to close out their worst first half to a year since JFK was in office. But Piper Sandler's Craig Johnson says we've yet to see the worst of it. Jay Powell turning more hawkish by the day, defending the central bank's biggest rate hike in nearly 30 years. Prepping for round two today, he says a recession is possible. Also in Washington, the White House running out of options to lower gas prices. And with little support for a federal gas tax holiday, the Biden administration wants to talk to the producers themselves. Mark Zuckerberg laying out his North Star when it comes to his fantasy world. And Elon Musk getting real about his newest factories and just how much it costs to keep the lights on. It is Thursday, June 23rd, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us here, and let's get right now to these markets. And we are seeing stock futures actually a little bit sanguine this morning. They are mixed we're seeing a couple up, couple down. Dow futures are down about 100, but NASDAQ futures are up 75 points. All this as the market tried to turn around yesterday. You remember 24 hours ago, we were telling you that stock futures were down big. But then in the morning, some buyers stepped in. The markets were green much of the day. Still, overall, stocks did in lower across the board. Not, not by a lot, but they were in the red. And with that, listen to this rather unfortunate stat. Unless something big changes the next week or so, the S&P 500 is on pace for its worst first half to a year since 1962. That's when it lost 23.5%. Ouch. In bonds, the 10-year yield has actually been moving lower a little bit lately. In fact, this morning, it is back below 3.1%. Also moving down lately has been the price of oil getting weaker over the last couple of sessions we are seeing the price of crude oil right now. It is down again to 103.63. It is off just under 10% in the past week. That should, over a matter of time, remember it's not immediate, bring gasoline prices down just a touch. Oh, and by the way, for all you technicians out there, crude oil closing below its 50-day moving average for the first time since mid-May. All of this ahead of the Biden oil U.S. CEO summit, or whatever you want to call it, where Department of Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm will meet with seven oil and gas, either CEOs or heads of the U.S. at the Department of Energy today. More on that coming up in a few moments. And in the always volatile crypto markets, let's see what's going on there. The price of crypto, of course, has been really slammed in the last couple of weeks. They're all slightly higher right now, up you know, 1.5% to 3%. Cold comfort, though, at least Bitcoin is back above. 20,000 right now. Remember, Bitcoin was at 60,000 at its highs. Now it's at 20,576. That's what's happening here. Let's get a check on some of the early action and the key headlines happening out of Europe. 
Juliana Tattlebaum is in our London newsroom with that. Juliana, a split board right behind you. Brian, well, in terms of equity markets, we've got red across the board. Every major market is trading lower. Germany underperforming this morning. The DAX is down about 1.2 percent. And we've got the gas situation firmly in focus in Germany. The big news this morning, Germany has triggered phase two of their emergency gas plan, effectively calling on uh, industry leaders to do whatever they can to ensure gas supplies. We had a line out of Germany's economy minister this morning saying that they are hoping to avoid a situation where rationing will come into effect. But of course, at this stage, anything does remain possible. We are also seeing um, a decent amount of action in fixed income in Europe this morning. Not only the the, um, reaction to the news out of Germany, but also reaction to fresh PMIs. The June flash numbers came in and they disappointed. We're still in expansion territory in the Eurozone, but the situation has deteriorated. So it seems as though investors are much more focused on the possibility of a recession and uh, more severe downturn than perhaps previously expected. So here we are, the German 10-year Bund now trading well below 1.5%, so a meaningful step lower, 1.45%. The Italian 10-year, this spread is the key one to watch between Italy and Germany, 3.5%. Finally, FX, we are seeing investors sell the euro versus the dollar. We're currently down 7 tenths of a percent to 104.93. Brian, with that, we'll hand it back over to you. Not just America facing inflation, higher rates, and fears of a slowing economy. It is a global phenomenon, Juliana. Thank you very much. All right, now to get some of this morning's key headlines, including, if possible, more flying woes as American Airlines plans to stop service to many smaller American cities. Savannah Hanau is here with that and more. Savannah, good morning, I think. Yep, right, Brian. Good morning. Well, you'll start with shares of Chinese EV makers surging in overnight Asian trading. On reports, Beijing is considering extending tax exemption allowances for the industry, exemptions that are due to expire this year. The move would be a part of a bigger package aiming to boost consumer spending in the auto sector. American Airlines plans to drop service to several small U.S. cities this September, citing service cuts and a shortage of regional pilots. The four cities losing American service, Toledo, Ohio, Islip, New York, Ithaca, New York, and Dubuque, Iowa, which will lose scheduled commercial air service altogether once American pulls out. The move by American is a similar one to industry peers Delta and United, which have each scaled back service between some smaller cities and their hubs, citing a lack of aviators. And the FDA is investigating a new report of another child's death, possibly linked to Abbott Labs' baby formula. The FDA says it learned about the death, which occurred back in January, from a consumer complaint it received on June 10th. The agency says the probe is in preliminary stages and it will provide ongoing updates. The FDA did not say which Abbott formula the baby had consumed or where the formula was produced. Abbott initiated a recall of its infant formula products and closed its Michigan plant back in February after reports of serious bacterial infections in four infants, Brian. Oh, tough story there. Yeah. Savannah and now we'll see in a few minutes. Thank you very much. Sounds All right. Good. All right, let's get back down to Wall Street and your money, shall we? Investors looking ahead to Fed Chairman Jay Powell's second day of testimony on Capitol Hill. This after he testified yesterday that their battle against inflation could raise rates high enough to trigger an economic downturn. Our part of it is to is to do what we can to get inflation back under control. I know higher interest rates are painful, but that's the tool we have to 
moderate demand and get uh, demand and supply back into balance so that inflation can come down. Notice how everything is a tool these days. Anyway, Powell's comments coming as the S&P is set to close out its worst first half to a start of a year since 1962. And some on the street say the U.S. stock market losses may have only just begun. Here's Principal Global Advisor Seema Shaw yesterday. Without actually seeing any drop in the end growth numbers. So this is almost your first leg so far. And then as we start to see the economic data, the earnings growth data start to turn, that's when you get into your second leg of equity market declines. And I wouldn't say that, you know, 30 percent drop from 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 the peak um, is impossible. All right. Joining us now is Piper Sandler, Chief Market Technician, Craig Johnson. Craig, good to have you back on this morning. Uh, I know from reading your, your notes that the, the technicals do not look great right now. Just how bad do they look in the near term? Well, Brian, everybody's trying to put into the perspective, is this a bottom or is this just a bounce? And I think the answer is this is just a bounce. There's just not enough technical evidence yet to say that a true bottom has been set. And when you go through and you just simply look at the charts, look at all of the Microsofts, look at Apple, look at Adobe, look at all these large cap names. They're all in very easily definable downtrends at this point in time, Brian. So as I look at this market, I look at the setup, it looks like you got another 7 to 10% downside. We've been kind of honing in on around this 3,500 level, Brian, on the S&P 500 as where we will likely find some support and perhaps at that point in time, we can find our footing. But right now, the Fed is not our friend. And interest rates are certainly not our friend either at this point in time. And the Fed is clearly going to keep raising rates to try to push down inflationary pressures, which means likely more pain for equities. Well, we've had these gut-wrenching days, Craig, where you get you know 30 to 1 downside volume to upside. The VIX pops 20%. You know, you've got no stocks on the NASDAQ 100 that are higher. We've had a couple of those days, and yet the market still has not found a bottom. What are you looking for? Is the, I know there's not some big flag, hey, market bottom here, but is there one thing over something else that you're watching for, Craig? And don't say, yeah, for stocks to stop going down. I know that. <laughs> Brian, you mean nobody rings a bell at the bottom here? I mean, that's... Uh... Uh, shocking, right? No. What, in all seriousness, what we're looking for is we've got some indicators we're looking at in terms of market breadth. Those market breadth indicators, Brian, have gotten to levels that have been commensurate with prior major downturns. You and I have talked near the lows in 2020, 2018, um, in those periods, and even uh, in 2007, 2009. Those indicators are getting to those levels. But I'll just say this, Brian, it's only been the first week that we've gotten to those levels. And this washed out breath indicators that we look at typically will be anywhere between six to 10 weeks in this sort of washed out state. We're week one. So again, I think it's gonna take more time, but I wanna see that breath measure wash out. I then wanna see a little bit of an improvement and expansion in that. And that'll be sort of, for me, the indication I'll be looking for to step in and get what I could define as a tradable bottom, not maybe the bottom. But here's the, maybe the big headline is that you are sticking by your end of year price objective of 47.75 I believe it is Craig I mean that's bold that's big that is big and that's about 26 27% upside from where we are now and certainly we've gotten a lot of pushback from investors as to why we're sticking with this and the answer is really history 
So when you go back and you look at these weak first halves like you have discussed, um, there are indications from June to December, you can get a 20 plus percent uh, advance from here into year end if the breadth of the market starts to improve. When we look at our, our indicators that measure that market breadth, Brian, when we've gotten to these levels, we see this breadth expansion that happens. I often think about it as sitting on a beach ball inside of a pool and watching that breadth expand very quickly. We can get 20, 30% advances in a 26 week period of time. It has happened. And that's exactly what I think will likely happen again once the Fed comes back and says, we've sort of accomplished our goals, inflationary pressures have come down. Yeah. I think the market will respond very quickly. But that's it, right? That's, we've got to, history says, along with the charts, we have got to have the Fed pivot. We've got to have the Fed change their tune. Maybe at the Jackson Hole Conference in August, some are suggesting, right? Absolutely. It could be that. And then don't forget about midterm elections coming. It could certainly uh, boost investor confidence. Well, I've heard about these elections. Craig Johnson, Piper Sandwich, sticking to his guns, sticking by the target. We appreciate you getting up early, Craig. Thank you very much. All right. We've got a lot more to do here, folks. We are just getting started on this Thursday. When we come back, rising mortgage rates may be sparking trouble for some home buyers. But there's at least one part of the real estate world that is benefiting. That story coming up. Plus, President Biden continuing to go after big oil. Slamming profit margins is unacceptable and calling on these companies to boost supplies of gasoline, even as refineries are nearly already maxed out. Today, the energy CEO is heading to Washington to meet Department of Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. I'll tell you about that and later on why Elon Musk is warning that two of his company's plants turning into what he calls, quote, gigantic money furnaces. We're back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, welcome back and good Thursday morning. Let's get a quick big money mover check. And we're watching shares of Occidental Petroleum right now. Because Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway buying another 9.6 million shares of that stock, boosting his stake to 16.3%, according to a new filing. Buys were made over the past week and cost about $529 million. What's amazing about that buy by Buffett is normally he likes to buy when things are low. Occidental Petroleum has been one of the hottest stocks in America in the last year. So Warren Buffett stepping in and buying Oxy, not at the high, but certainly at a high compared to relatively where it had been. Maybe a big tell on OXY. 
Well, meantime, mortgage applications are dropping as rates continue to rise. Rates for a 30-year fixed income mortgage now up 80% in just 12 months. Even so, home prices are also still rising, up about 15% of the past year. And it's not just ownership. Rents were also too darn high in many places, up 17% on average nationally. So how does this all play out? Higher rates, but higher prices. Joining us now is Scott Lawler. He's CEO and founder of Waypoint Residential. They have more multifamily developments in Florida than I believe, at least under development, than anybody else. Uh, Scott, welcome back to CNBC. It's good to have you on. How does this play out? Can, can prices continue to rise even as rates continue to rise? Well, well no, they can't. Let's break apart um, uh, single-family and rental for a minute. And on the single-family side, the the rate of home price appreciation was simply not sustainable. I think everybody understood that. And so some moderation in that rate of increase is actually a good thing. I don't think we're seeing meaningful across the board declines yet, but we're seeing a decline in the rate of growth. And you know, as you have prices keep going up, and now you, you pile on with the recent uptick in interest rates, affordability is just a problem. And I, I think uh, something like 4 million Americans uh, can't, who could afford a home a year ago can't today. And so that's going to impact pricing. Um, and so things will moderate. And the same thing on the rental side. On the rental side, we've seen, you know, frankly, absurd rates of, uh, of growth in rent over the last year or two that are not sustainable. And that's really just a function of supply and demand um, uh, for a broad host of reasons that would take a long yeah. time to get into. The United States has been undersupplied for a long time, both uh, single-family side and rental side, and that needs to get fixed. It feels like the price of oil in a way, right, Scott? Something changes, and then everybody wants the price of the pump to change overnight. That's not how the oil and gas business works. I would imagine it's not how real estate works. Rates have been on the rise, but for many people, it takes them months to buy a home. Do you have a general idea of how long that lag time is between a spike in rates and when we actually start to feel it in the market itself? Sure. Well, it's a matter of degree. So, look, we've seen some impact already. As we said, we're starting to, you know, we've been, we've been increasing at an incredible rate of speed, and that's begun to decline. We're seeing some mortgage companies um, lay off some people. We're seeing a decline in uh, mortgage applications and so on. And so the first step, right, is a decline in the rate of growth. Um, when that flattens out and then potentially declines, I think it's very difficult to, to pin that with too much precision, but it, it takes a while. And I don't think anyone would be surprised to see um, average home prices across the country six months from now be maybe a little lower than today. I don't think we're, I don't think we're severe, sudden decline, but some movement in the opposite direction. Truthfully, would it be completely unhealthy mm-hmm. if you look at it by home? Um, we, this was common, and in, in some ways it's good. You know, at least maybe going back to like, I don't know, 1820, there was a housing shortage, Scott. As people, the, the country expanded, I have no idea. But at least in modern times, we have not had the housing shortage that we do now. So there's sort of the juxtaposition. Rates are on the rise. Prices are up. It looks like a negative setup. But at the same time, because of demographics, we've got this massive housing shortage, particularly in the Sunbelt states where you operate. So there is a countervailing force, is there not? Which is as painful as it is, people gotta live somewhere. That's right. 
you know, what's gone on with the, both the, on the rental side and the ownership side the last few years is very, very important to understand what's driving it, as you're pointing out, which is supply and demand, very basic supply and demand. And uh, we've been undersupplied with the creation of new single-family and rental homes relative to household formation for the better part of this millennium. Um, so, you know, that's something that has to address, get addressed over time because we've created a problem which we've seen manifest itself in some of the numbers we've over the last few years. And um, what's interesting is that on the demand yeah. side, I don't think anyone is, is forecasting any kind of fall off. You know, people move, um, you know, Florida and Texas and so on from the Northeast and Midwest and California. If anything, that's only accelerating. You know, that's picking up speed. And so um, as it relates to supply and demand fundamental driving um, or, uh, or over time, right? We could hit some speed bumps along the way. We have a recession. People might be, you know, a little, a little bit worried. Decline in household formation and things like that. Short term, intermediate to longer term, I think the story is still very, very strong um, for both rental and single-family homes. The nine of what is it? Nine of the biggest ten inbound moving states are all in the Sun Belt. I was telling my buddy to tell his teenage son he should get in the HVAC business because the air conditioning is going to boom. Scott Lawler of Waypoint Residential. Scott, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for everybody wants to live where it is sunny and warm all the time. You want to be bullish energy? There you go. All right, on deck. Bullish options buying and some beaten up retailers. Our friend John Najarian is here with a name you might want to consider. Today's big number. $2.4 trillion. That's how much global energy investment will reach by the end of 2022, driven by clean energy, according to a report by the International Energy Agency. That's up 8% over last year, back over pre-COVID levels. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation or starting your dream business welcome to connie's coffee how may i help you aarp's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds that's why the younger you are the more you need aarp start planning today at aarp.org money tools this podcast is supported by fedex dear small and medium businesses No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Philip Mena. Here are your headlines. Robb Elementary School, the scene of the May 24th massacre that left 21 dead, is set to be demolished. The mayor of Uvalde, Texas, said he does not believe any teacher or student should have to go back there. 
This as the school's police chief, Pete Arredondo, was placed on administrative leave by the Uvalde School District. He has faced heavy criticism for his decision to delay confronting the gunman. Arredondo has said that he did not consider himself to be the officer in charge at the scene. Federal prosecutors say Ghislaine Maxwell should spend at least 30 years in prison. They made their recommendations to a judge presiding over the sentencing hearing that will take place next week. Maxwell was convicted of sex trafficking after a month-long trial. Her lawyers are asking the judge to impose a sentence shorter than 20 years. Finally, it was a historic night at the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. Trumpet the Bloodhound is the first in his breed to win Best in Show. He beat out a French Bulldog, a German Shepherd, and an English Setter. This show, it's usually in the winter, but was moved this year because of the pandemic. Worldwide Exchange will be back after this. Can stocks and your money turn it around? Futures right now, they are mixed as markets may do something they have not done since John F. Kennedy was in office. Credit Suisse's Patrick Palfrey is here with what's on his shopping list. Mark Zuckerberg laying out his long-term vision for his online world. Our North Star is that you know, by the end of the decade, we hope to basically get to around a billion people in the metaverse doing hundreds of of dollars of commerce each. I think that there's going to be a massive economy around this. And what else? Zuckerberg told our Jim Cramer on how he plans to get it done. And later on, running out of options, the White House turns to the oil executives for a face-to-face meeting to ask them why gas prices are not coming down. It is Thursday, June 23rd, and this is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. All right, welcome or welcome back, everybody. Just about 5.30 on the East Coast. Thanks for joining us. Let's kick off the half hour, as always, with a check on the markets and your money and stock futures are actually doing something they have not done in a while, and that is not give us a great indication of which way they want to go. Yesterday at this time, remember, they were down big. They were up big on Tuesday, down big yesterday. We actually were in the green a little bit yesterday, then ended down. They're mixed. I don't know if we've seen a mixed market in a long time. It feels... Oddly refreshing, maybe NASDAQ futures up 43, Dow futures down about 50 points. What has been moving down the last couple of days is oil prices actually weakening over the last couple of sessions. And right now, we are seeing the price of crude oil down again. It's down about uh, 220 a barrel to 104. Exactly, Brent crude in Europe down uh, below 110. Overall, oil down about 8 to 10% in the past week. That should... Help bring gasoline prices down just a touch. We'll see. And by the way, some rare good news in energy prices lately. Natural gas has been falling. It is down more than 15% in the past week. And by the way, one of the biggest natural gas ETFs, the First Trust Nat Gas FCG, is falling with it. Down nine of the past 10 sessions. That fire at the Freeport LNG plant taking its toll in the near-term market. And by the way, the Washington Examiner reporting that the FBI is now involved in looking into that fire. Just one paper, but sort of an interesting twist to that Freeport fire, if true, something to watch. By the way, not all fossil fuels are down lately. Coming up in your RBI in a few minutes, we're going to show you one that is up big lately. And it is not good news for all of you watching or listening right now up there in Boston, Vermont or Portsmouth, New Hampshire. You know what is good news? Having our friend John and Jerry on the program. He is with us now, of course, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com 
and CNBC contributor. John, it's great to have you back on. Uh, I know you got some individual stocks and options that you want to look at, but overall, macro market view, do you have one? Absolutely, Brian, and thank you for having me. Um, good morning, everybody. The, uh, the issue that you pointed out, Brian, about uh, the wild swings in the market, and for the most part, from the upper left to the lower right on the charts moving lower, um, it, it, it doesn't look like we've broken that fever just yet. Um, the main reason I'm saying that is the volumes on any rallies um, have been just abysmal. So, for instance, uh, when we got that Fed relief rally last week um, and the markets just screamed 600 points to the upside, the volume that day was uh, just a paltry 39 million contracts. Um, the very next day when we gave it all back and then some, it was 47 million contracts. So um, the average for the year is 41, by the way. Um, so uh, when we see people trying to, you know, jumpstart or get the market rolling to the upside, Brian, um, and you're seeing low volumes, like, for instance, Tuesday this week, it was 37 million. Yesterday, it was 34 million. Um, these are low numbers, uh, and they don't imply that the institutions have been um, convinced that the bottom's in yet. Doesn't mean that they're always right, uh, but I'm just saying, evidentially, when we look at it, Brian, it doesn't look like uh, there's a yeah. real endorsement of the rally as being anything but short term. Yeah, you want to see that that volume a lot. I know 39 million sounds like a lot to our viewers, but overall, it's not a big number. And you want to see that number go up to have a little more conviction. All right, let's talk about a couple of individual names that have caught your eye there at Market Rebellion. Sure. One of them is JWN Nordstrom. What are you seeing there? Yep. Well, uh, these are short-term, July uh, 24 calls. The stock was mid-23s yesterday, Brian. Um, not really doing anything, of course, in the pre-market this early. But um, it looks like uh, they're putting on some pretty big bets there. We've seen some pretty big bets in Walmart recently. And as far as other consumer discretionary plays, maybe even Starbucks. Um, but overall... Um, it's really been an individual, as you would call it, Brian, stock pickers market rather than broad retail across the board. Did see that rebound in Target, did not get a subsequent endorsement of that move yet in uh, uh, you know, people getting back in after the, the whack that Target took uh, on these dual uh, warnings that they've had over yeah. the past month or six weeks. Um, but overall, people are putting some money in betting that some of these retailers have a bounce in the short term. Well, it sounds like a lot of the stuff we're talking about, John, is sort of a short term phenomenon, whether it's a bounce, the macro market or those names like a Nordstrom, like a Target. We're watching it. Could be a long, hot summer. John DeGerian of uh, MarketRebellion.com. John, always love having you on, my man. Thank you. Get some rest. Thank you, Brian. All right. Let's, OK. Yeah, you, you're sir. very welcome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Turning now to D.C., some new details about a meeting between Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm and seven oil and gas executives. We can confirm the meeting will be held at the Department of Energy headquarters in D.C. And my sources tell me it will start at 11.15 a.m. Eastern and run a very tidy 45 minutes with an expected end time of noon Eastern. In attendance will be the CEOs and executives for the seven companies that President Biden sent letters to last week 
about refining capacity, including Exxon, Chevron, Shell, Valero, Marathon Petroleum, Phillips 66, and BP. The energy secretary is expected to press the group on why they are not refining more gasoline or producing more oil. And my sources tell me the group may push back a bit that refineries already running above 90% capacity and that even driving some of these refineries to try to produce more could pose a safety risk by overburdening some of the facilities and their crew. Keep in mind, this is an industry that has been repeatedly told that it will be, quote, phased out over time and is now being asked to produce more fossil fuels. Quite the turn in just a year. Joining us now as a key figure leading in today's talks and one with an ear to the ground is Mike Summers, CEO of the American Petroleum Institute, which, by the way, represents nearly 600 companies involved in production, refinement, and distribution of fossil fuels. Mike, good to have you back on. I guess that means I get to play the role of the administration in our discussion here. Um, first off, when I, when I got, my source told me the meeting was going to be 11.15 to noon. I thought, that seems awfully short. What are you hearing about this meeting today? Well, as, as you know, Brian, this that would be a very short meeting. We would uh, obviously love an opportunity to, to spend more time with this administration to explain the intricacies of the refining business. As you've mentioned, uh, our refineries right now are operating at about a 94% level, which is a historically high level. Uh, refiners in this country are really putting the pedal to the metal to refine more gasoline right now at a time of real market tightness. So I think what you're going to hear from us is an explanation of what's going on in this marketplace and how we need some relief, particularly on the regulatory side, to get more refineries up and going at a time of a really difficult situation for American consumers. All right, so again, I'm going to play the other side of this role here, Mike, because what, what we hear from the administration and what we hear from, by the way, viewers or Twitter, whatever it is, is, well, 9,000 leases that are not being activated. Why are you not drilling when profit margins are high? Profits are not at records yet. That's, that's sort of a misstatement that goes around, but they are up. And yet you are not drilling more as an industry by a wide measure. You're up, but not by a lot. How come? In fact, uh, this industry just last month hit about 12 million barrels of production a day which is the highest levels it's been since uh, the pandemic began. We can produce more in this country, and I think you're going to continue to see those numbers rise. As for that false statistic of 9,000 leases, we're producing on more leases today than we have in the history of our country. The utilization rate of federal leases on federal waters and on federal lands is significantly higher than it's ever been because prices are high. So I think what this administration needs to do is they need to, to stop uh, using these facts that are just simply wrong. And they need to start focusing on the tone that they've set, which is that they continue to say that this industry is not even going to be around in the next eight years. That's not going to provide the kind of investment that we need in this industry, which we know is going to be around for decades and decades and decades, because the world is going to continue to demand oil and gas. It's our view that they should be getting that oil and gas from here in the United States, not from unstable regimes abroad mm. like Russia. In fact, we're sending a letter today to the president to request that he come to, to the prolific Permian Basin or go to the Marcellus Shale before he goes to Saudi Arabia to beg for more oil yeah. from Saudi. I was explaining it to my son, Mike, and the, the way I, he's young, and so the way I said it is imagine if, if you're being told that fast food is bad 
and fast food, because it's unhealthy, needs to go away. Then a year or two later even, I mean, not long, you're saying, darn it, fast food, why aren't you producing more Big Macs and Whoppers? And fast food's like, well, you just told me two years ago that we're bad and should be going away. I mean, this industry has had to ping pong between wildly different energy policies on the Republican side as well. I don't know how you operate when every four to eight years you've got a totally different set of policy agendas in Washington. Well, you're, you've hit the nail on the head, Brian, but of course, uh, we're different from fast food as well. You know, ours is an industry that produces essential products, products that the world is going to continue to meet to need far, far into the future. In fact, the International Energy Agency suggests that even if every country meets its uh, Paris Climate Accord agreement, the world is still going to get about 50 percent of its energy from oil and gas. So we need to continue to make those investments, but we need an investment environment, an environment from the top, from the president of the United States himself, who says that we need to continue to invest in these fuels and in production in the United States. And we're just not hearing yeah. that. We've actually put out a it plan. It just seems oh. like, yeah, Mike, I, I, I saw the plan and we've talked about it. Just quickly, I know we got to go. I want to say, I mean, do you believe that this is largely an administration? And there are some very bright people in the administration, by the way, and a guy like Amos Hochstein, he gets it. He understands how the industry works. But as a whole, some of the things you hear just seems like the industry doesn't have a fundamental understanding of how things work, how they operate. Well, we have great concerns about that. I spend a lot of time with the administration explaining how important this industry is to the world. Uh, and to American consumers. So we try to spend our time educating this administration on how important this is and that we're going to need this industry for many, many years ahead. There are some bright lights in this administration who want to help solve this problem. People like Amos Hochstein and, and David Turk at the Department of Energy. These are smart people who understand yeah. energy markets. Unfortunately, we're not hearing it from the podium, from the president himself, who continues to badger an industry that employs 11 million people in this, this country and accounts for about 8% of our GDP. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just a reminder, I'll say, I said it on Twitter last night, I'll say it on the air right now. Big oil companies only own about 1% of gas stations in America. Most are owned by mom and pop, single owners, or convenience store chains. It just seems like we just hear some odd stuff. Mike Summers of API, I know you got a long day, Mike. We appreciate you starting early with us. Thank you very much. Great to be with you, Brian. All right, Mike, thank you. All right, coming up, forget gigafactories, why Elon Musk is calling his newest factories in Germany and Texas money furnaces. Money Furnace. Good band name. Maybe bad for business. Dow Features now down 12. We're back right after this. All right, welcome or welcome back. And good Thursday morning. Let's get some of this morning's top corporate headlines. Silvana Hanau is back with those. What's going on, Silvana? All right, Brian, here's what's going on. Meta Platform CEO Mark Zuckerberg has high hopes for the metaverse. Telling our own Jim Cramer last night, it's likely to be a considerable part of the company's business in the second half of this decade, but not without a lot of investment. In order to really deliver these experiences over the next several years, we kind of feel like we need to develop, the, we need to build the whole stack, right? Go from, from the hardware 
um, all the way up to the software and then a bunch of the experiences on top of that. So we're going to do that. And that's a, it's a big focus for us. You know, we, we are at this point you know, a company that can afford to make um, some big long-term research investments. Zuckerberg adding he hopes to have upwards of a billion people in the metaverse one day. And Elon Musk says Tesla's two newest vehicle factories in Germany and Texas are losing billions of dollars as supply chain issues and battery manufacturing challenges limit the company's ability to readily ramp up production. In a recent interview with a Tesla owners club, Musk says the two gigafactories are, quote, gigantic money furnaces. Berlin and Austin are losing billions of dollars right now. Because there's a ton of expense and, and, and hardly any output. Mm. So having, get, getting Berlin and Austin functional and getting Shanghai back, uh, back in the saddle fully mm. are overwhelmingly our concerns. Musk adds he hopes to resolve the issues quickly. Shares of Tesla are down more than 30 percent this year. And shares of KB Home are popping ahead of the open. The home builder reporting better than expected earnings and revenue, saying EPS was 55 percent higher compared to this time last year. KBH sees the housing market moderating, but it still expects to achieve this its revenue goals this year. Brian? You know, so important what Musk was saying. I mean, it's the reason people say higher fossil fuel costs, good for the EV business. Maybe not, because he's got to raise prices Exactly. because his utility costs are up. And somebody says, you know what, I'd like a Tesla, but here's a Toyota for 30000 That gets 35 miles to the gallon. It's all I can afford. So, Von Hanau, thank you very much. You got it, Brian. All right, I'm back, and so is the RBI. Today's most random but interesting thing may be some bad news for all of our viewers and friends up in New England. Sorry. Because while the price of oil and gasoline has actually begun to tick down a bit lately, the price of something else that you up there use a lot of has not. And that is heating oil. Look at this. Price of heating oil is not only higher lately, but it's on fire. The futures contract nearly doubling from just six months ago. It is now more than $4 a contract. How does that compare to the past? Well, in June of 2019, three years ago, it was just over $2. And in June of 2020, as the lockdowns hit, it was just over $1. Retail prices are now above $4 or even in some cases $5 a gallon in parts of New England, something that has never been seen. Now, this is going to be really, really bad for millions of Americans who use heating oil to heat their homes in winter. The cost to fill the tank could be double what it was one year ago. Imagine paying $1,500 last year and 3000 this year. That simply may not be possible for everybody. And that's mostly all of you in New England and parts of the Northeast. In fact, more than 66% of all homes in Maine are heated with heating oil. And even while prices have been soaring, there's been a push by a climate council in Vermont to actually raise taxes on heating oil. The governor shot that down, at least for now. Some rare good news, I guess, for those struggling with energy poverty. So remember, A few months ago, we were showing you how electricity prices in New England were out of control. Remember that back in January and February? In part because it costs so much to make power there. Well, with heating oil on the rise, let's hope that somehow Boston and New England skirt another cold winter. Because if they don't, and if power costs rise again, it could be a very long and very expensive winter in Beantown, Portsmouth, Concord, and every place else. Talk to your elected officials about it. I'm sure they would love to hear from you as prices spike.
random but interesting and a tough winter ahead. All right, on deck. Energy stocks, speaking of, some of the biggest winners so far this year, but those mega returns are not stopping your next guest from making an even bigger bet on the group. That's next. All right, welcome back. Investors continue to monitor inflation pressures and any signs that the U.S. or global economies could be headed for a major slowdown or even a recession. So what does that mean for the equity markets? Well, we know what it's meant, but where's it going? Patrick Palfrey is Credit Suisse's senior equity strategist and joins us now. And Patrick, we had a rather uh, random but painful, let's call it stat, earlier in the show. Uh, the S&P 500 is on pace for its worst first half to a year since 1962. Can it get any worse? Well, I think right now it depends on where you think the economy is headed. We believe that a lot of the valuation correction we've seen in the market has taken place because we have rising interest rates, we have widening credit spreads, and we have elevated volatility. So I think the question then becomes is if we get uh, volatility to heal, we believe stocks can rally from here. Uh, But I think the flip side to that question, though, is if you think we are headed into a recession, we don't actually think markets have been pricing recessionary risk up until about the past week. So there could be another leg down if you believe there's a recession, uh, at at least over the near term. But we don't necessarily see that on the horizon, perhaps over the next 18 months. So we we think stocks have an ability to move higher here. Yeah. And, and, you know, recessions matter because earnings come down. So what is your earnings model? I don't what is it, 200 Dollars in total earnings on the S&P 500, it's 16 times earnings. That gets you to a 3,200 price objective. Where do you guys stand at Credit Suisse on earnings and valuations? So for earnings, we're looking for this year at 235. That's up around 10%. 2023, we're looking for 255. And I think what's important is that's also 10%. Uh, Corporate profits remain quite healthy because companies benefit from a nominally strong GDP. So that means they benefit from inflation because they have fixed cost leverage. I think the debate is what do you put on it for a multiple? And right now, our expectation for a multiple is to move something back towards the range of 19. We're about 16 and a half. And we expect that to take place over the back half of the year. And once again, it's as we see volatility come down, we believe multiples can can move higher. That said, you know, if recessionary risks pick up, then I think earnings have to come down. We're not seeing it right now in the estimates. Uh, We're not seeing it when we talk to analysts or we look at analyst dispersion. So how uncertain analysts are, they seem to be fairly comfortable with their estimates. So right now, we don't think we have the same recessionary concerns that I think a lot of investors are uh, actually focused on. I was gonna, those are pretty big numbers, Patrick, that, that you're still seeing earnings grow. All we hear about is recession and doom. Well, I, I think what, what investors are focused on is the deceleration of economic activity. And let's be clear, uh, we're coming out of an economic bounce, and we are decelerating on a real basis. So let's not take that away from the conversation. We're decelerating from an extremely high level and moving to something that looks back towards trend growth. So investors are, I believe, over extrapolating the pain that they're seeing in this deceleration. And they're saying, well, we're going to head towards a recession. Uh, I think when you look at labor market conditions, when you look at industrial indicators uh, like industrial production or for ISM PMI, uh, you see a backdrop that remains quite healthy. And even retail sales have have continued to hang in there. Um, so when, when we look around the landscape, we don't necessarily see the same recessionary concerns, yeah. and therefore we don't see the same concern to uh, the same risk towards earnings, right? 
20 seconds to go. Leave us with an investable idea right now, Patrick. Something's got to look good. Anything? I I would continue to have investors focus on commodity-sensitive areas. We've had a little bit of weakness in oil, but ultimately we're we're in an environment we are supply-constrained around commodities, and ultimately that's going to be the area we're going to see a lot of fixed-cost leverage and a lot of upside profits. Patrick, Paul Free, Credit Suisse, great stuff. Patrick, always appreciate you coming on the program. Thank you. Have a fantastic day. And, folks, that goes for all of you out there as well in TV or radio or podcast land. Thank you for tuning in as well. We'll see you tomorrow. Squawk Box is next. Have a great day. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.